Well, let me ask you as we begin, are you a person who gets easily distracted? Now, I'm not asking that because of uh, my sermon and uh, the impending length thereof, uh, but uh, let me ask you, are you easily distracted? I have a, a friend, Scott, uh, we've chatted about him before, and uh, he fits this category very much. He is very much someone who is easily distracted. And this is no more obvious than in his driving skills. Uh, throughout school and university years, uh, he was the first one amongst us all to get his licence, and so he was always the designated driver, whether it was to school or university, wherever it might be. Scott, in his very old model Ford Cortina, diamond blue, he said, looked like off-white to me, but uh, diamond blue uh, was what drove us around. Now, uh, fortunately, given uh, his ease of uh, distractibility, it was a very, very slow vehicle. Uh, could get up to, uh, I think, about 10, 20 kilometres an hour if it was trying very hard, but that was about it. Uh, but this didn't stop every trip in that car being a, uh, an even money bet on life or death at the end of it. No fewer than three times driving around the suburbs, uh, the suburb of St Ives, which is not known for its dangerous driving roads, uh, we came off the road and crashed into a garbage bin on the side of the road. And on at least one of those occasions, his reason for ending up there was, I'm sorry, I was reading. <laughs> and this is Scott. Uh, regularly we sailed through red lights as if they weren't there, as if that was the rule, red meant go. And uh, quite often uh, he'd leave his handbrake off uh, outside his house, which was on a slope, and he'd come out looking for his car, no car, and there at the bottom of the street was Scott's car and he'd wander down, get it, and off he'd go. But for me, the ultimate example of his ease of distraction behind the wheel uh, came before our first HSC exam, which is like the the A-levels, our final school exams, and uh, we were all a bit stressed about it, so we'd gone to the beach before the first exam, we'd headed there early in the morning and we were driving back to the exam and there's Scott in his board shorts and his shirt driving back to the uh, exam and for some reason, I don't know, nerves were still, uh, still troubling him and he decided that it was a really good idea while driving, while stationary at a, at a sort of a traffic light to get the drawstring of his board shorts and tie it around the steering wheel with a knot. <laughs> I'm not sure what he was thinking but it seemed like a good idea at the time. Now, uh, the steering wheel of the the Ford Cortina, if you've ever seen it, is about the size of a giant bus. I'm not sure why they made the wheel so big, but they did. And so he tied the string around this, which was fine for a while as we sailed straight down the road. But as we came to a corner, none of us aware that Scott had uh, decided that this was a good idea, he turned the corner and all of a sudden we see Scott winched up (laughs) and sitting on the dashboard, driving the car almost backwards like this until we could pull over. Scott uh, is easily distracted. How about you? Are you easily distracted in life? As I said, I'm not asking you that uh, as a, because of this sermon. I'm asking you that because of what we have been thinking about in 1 John. Because in recent weeks we've been thinking about the fact that there are so many things around us, both in the world at large and even in the Christian community, that can derail us and distract us as Christians, can derail our faith. And so given that, we need to be clear and not distracted about the way ahead as Christians, the way to maintain our faith in what John has called in in recent weeks, as we've seen, the last hour before Christ returns. How are we going to make sure that we don't get sidetracked, we don't get distracted in this last hour? 
Well, you might remember last week as we were looking at 1 John chapter 2, it was all summed up for us in one word that John repeats some six times between verses 24 and 28 of 1 John 2 that's worth opening now. If you haven't got it open, 1 John 2 is on page 1225. And in these verses, verses 24 to 28, he repeats this word six times, continue or remain. And you might remember last week we saw two things that he said that we needed to let remain in our lives, let them have run in our lives. Firstly, he told us, let the word that you have heard from the beginning, the word of the apostolic gospel, the word brought to these readers by none other than the Apostle John, the word of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, let that word set up home in your heart. Let it have run of the house. Let it remain, said John. And then he'd gone on to say in verses 26 and 27, let God's spirit remain in you. The spirit that will teach you the truth about that word, about the gospel, the truth about Jesus. Let him have run in your life. But it's important to see as we continue this look at this letter that John is writing to those who are very unsure in their Christian faith, easily distracted, why it is that these two things would be such a powerful force to keep them on track. Why it is having God's word and God's spirit double teaming in our lives will make such a difference. Well, that's where John goes next. You see, both God's word and God's spirit are doing something very deliberate in our lives. They're training our eyes, fixing our eyes. And do you see what on at the end of verse 27? Last three words. Remain in him. Just as it has taught you, remain in him, says John. This is what God's word and his spirit are so powerfully doing for us. They are filling our eyes, the eyes of our heart, with the glorious reality of who Jesus Christ is. And the testimony of John's letter continues tonight at that point. That's where he wants us to be. Here in this last hour, he gives us a singular focus for the rest of our lives. He says, remain in him. You see it there in verse 28, and now, dear children, continue in him. As we stand in this last hour with with threats all about us, we are being shown by God's word and through his spirit the one safe place to be at such a time, with him. The more we allow God's word and his spirit to have free run in our lives, the more we will see Jesus is where life is found. He is the life, as he said in John 14. Without him there is no life. Not real life anyway, not full life, just existence, just passing away life. And the more we allow that word and spirit to go to work in our lives, the more we will see that apart from him we cannot hope to stand. That apart from him, as Jesus says in John 15, we can do nothing. And so seeing this, we will heed the words of our Lord The word his spirit speaks to our hearts in John 15 where he says, I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing, says Jesus. 
And we know that. Through repentance and faith we come to him in this last hour and we attach ourselves to him. We throw our lot in with him. We say, you're in charge. We say, we take our cues from you and no one else. We say, you are our strength. We are dependent on you. We will remain in you. What's that going to look like practically? To attach yourself to Jesus, to remain in him. And how can we be confident that that's where we're staying, that, that, that while we might have started there, that we haven't sort of drifted along the way? I mean, the, the moment you become a Christian, it's obvious, isn't it? You can sense that deliberate movement. We come to him and we say, yes, I'm with you. You're my Lord and God. Take me in. You know, I remember that moment as I was sitting there in a church in St Ives as, as the preacher was talking about Jesus and what he had done and the difference it made. I said, yes. I'm in. And you can feel it as your, your heart moves from independence to, to dependence, faithful dependence on Jesus and you say, he is my God. But how can we be sure that, that that's where we've stayed, that we haven't over time drifted from there? You know, like a little child with its parents, not aware that, it, that it's no longer next to them. That's where our youngest, uh, Jamie, our, our two-year-old daughter is at. Whenever we go walking, she's so independent, never wants to hold hands, even on the street, and so she says, no, no, I'm fine. Completely oblivious that, that there's more and more yards between us. And lately she, she's taken to, and this has happened a few times in, in shopping centres, as soon as we get in the door, she looks at me and just does the runner. And here I am, a grown man doing laps around grocery stores after a two-year-old. And sometimes we do that with God, we, we make a deliberate move away, but, but what if it's more like Jamie just on the street where we, we think we're with Jesus, but, but somehow we've drifted? I mean, surely that's easy to do, isn't it? To start with him and not notice the drift over the days and the months and the years? Well, what John is trying to do for us throughout this letter is to give us real security, real confidence that we are with him. And he does it again for us in verse 29. Have a look at it. He says, If you know that he, Jesus, is righteous, then you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. Verse 29 gives us the proof, the evidence that we're looking for. Essentially what John is saying is, if you remain in Christ, then it follows that you'll be like him. If I am remaining in Jesus, the longer I am joined to him, the longer I am attached, the more my day-to-day life will look like his day-to-day life on this earth. His nature will start to flow through me. I will produce the fruit of Christ-likeness, says John. The one who remains in me will bear much fruit, says Jesus. This idea of uh, fruitfulness in the Christian life is quite common in the scriptures but it finds its clearest expression in in Galatians 5 where we are told of the fruit of the spirit the fruit of righteousness the same thing that John 1 John 2 29 is talking about the fruit of joy of love of peace of patience kindness goodness faithfulness gentleness and self-control This is the fruit that our life will bear if we are with him. That as we come to his word, as his spirit teaches us of that word, shows us Jesus, 
as we abide deeper and deeper with him, this is what our life will start to look like. He is righteous and so those attached to him will be righteous. And so John says, if you want evidence that you're with him, then here it is. But I've got to be honest, if John was to leave us at this point in trying to give us security in the Christian life that we were with Jesus, that we were able to, as verse 29 says, be confident and unashamed when he appears, then if we stopped here, then my feet would be fairly wobbly on that day. How about yours? You know, there's something in us that that wants a list, that wants a list of things that says if you're doing that, then you're remaining in him, a sort of a ticker box list. That's human nature. And so we hear the call in verse 29 to be righteous as he is righteous or the expanded list in something like Galatians 5, this list of fruit that we might bear and we think, great, let's get started. Love, tick. Joy, well, needs a bit of work. Try a bit harder. Peace, yeah, okay. B, maybe B plus. Patience, well, I've had to be, haven't I? In recent times, the things I've had to go through, who wouldn't have been patient? A, for sure. Goodness, faithfulness, tick, tick, and on we go. But let me ask you, what's your measurement? What's your criterion that says, I am those things enough, I am fruitful enough, I am loving enough, joyful enough, self-controlled enough? How can you be sure you're righteous enough to remain with him? I mean, are there gradations? Is there an inner circle of those who are with him? On those days where you feel like you're just nailing it, you're doing everything well, I'm peaceful, I'm loving, I'm joyful, self-controlled, could have got angry in the car today, didn't. I'm in the inner circle, I'm right there with him. But then there's other days when you, when you think I'm very much on the outer circle. Whatever the outer circle is, that's the one I'm in. Well, perhaps I'm alone, but there are days when I feel very much that if I am with him, that's my place of residence. And all of a sudden, something that was meant to assure us has become our accuser, having us on some performance treadmill where we're desperate to impress Jesus to please him enough that we could be sure that we can be with him, that he'd be happy enough to have us around. He is righteous. The one who remains in him is righteous. Sounds simple, doesn't it? Well, let me suggest two massive problems for us. Number one, in and of himself, Andrew Reese is not righteous, not even close. It's not in me, the capacity that is. It's just not there. And I'm not alone. Romans 3 verse 9 says, As it is written, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. Remaining in Jesus is not as simple as saying, uh, I'll act like Jesus. You're righteous? Great, I'll be righteous. Can't do it. It's not in me. There used to be a saying when I was at university was C's get degrees. I'm not sure whether they still have that. You know, if you just scrape through past the exams, they'll give you the bit of paper at the end. Whether you got A's or C's, it didn't matter. C's get degrees. Not a great attitude for uni, but uh, <laughs> helpful slogan maybe. But uh, not in this case. doesn't work. Near enough is not good enough. On my own, I am not 
with him. Second problem, in and of himself, Andrew Reese doesn't want to be with him. My tendency is not to remain at all, to be faithful. My tendency is the other way. Romans 3, 11 and 12 says, There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. That's who I am. I'm the one who turns away. I'm Jamie doing the runner in the store. And seeing this clearly, my unrighteousness and my turning away from God enables me to see the wonder of what John is saying to us in this passage to give us deep and lasting assurance. If I'm going to remain in him, something far beyond anything I'm capable of has to happen, something out of this world. And that is exactly what has happened. Key words of verse 29, and I think they're easy to miss, Did you see them, the last three? Born of him. If I'm going to remain in Jesus, if I'm going to come to him in repentance and faith and remain in that relationship with him, I have to start all over again, be completely new, be born again. And as John 1 says, not of natural descent, not not of human decision, not of a husband's will, but born of God. And so to help us see that this has nothing to do with me and and my efforts to remain in him, John directs our eyes to the extraordinary love that has actually brought this about. You see it there in verse 1 of chapter 3. And unfortunately the NIV uh, distracts us from the fact that John wants us to fix our eyes at this point. It sort of chops off the first Greek word for some reason. The Greek word idete. It's an imperative, a command from John. He says, see, behold, look at this, says John. Stare at it, take it in, if indeed you can, because it will take your breath away. But look at it anyway. You think you've seen love? Think you know what it looks like, its its dimensions, its, its capacities? You haven't seen anything. Check this out, says John, because our world has never seen anything like it. John says, behold, what manner of love. That phrase, what manner, is the exact same phrase that the disciples used when they saw Jesus calm the storm. Be quiet, he said, and the wind and the waves obeyed him. And they said, what manner of man is this? We've we've never seen this before. John says the same of this love. He says, what manner of love is this? The amazing thing that John is directing our eyes towards, he's not saying, see, look at someone else's experience of this extraordinary, out-of-this-world love. He says, behold what manner of love the Father has lavished, love that word, on us. It's a love that takes all the initiative. Do you see what it does? It names us and then it makes it a reality that we are children of God. It is a lavish, free love. A love for the one who has not a righteous bone in their body and the one who is always turning away. We are God's children. Not just in name, but in status, in reality. As Galatians 4 puts it, it says, God sent his son, born of a woman, to redeem us. 
that we might receive the full rights of sons. And because you are sons, God has sent his spirit into your hearts, the spirit who enables you to cry out, Abba, Father. You see what God does for us? He doesn't just take us into our family as we are, hoping that we'll behave as we should, hoping that we can sort of look kind of the part. No, he declares us his children and and because of Jesus, he makes that actually who we are. He remakes us. He moves into our lives by his very spirit and gives us a whole new DNA, one patterned after his son, not just another sinful human, but one patterned after his perfect son. And we now have, as 1 John 3, 9 puts it, God's seed planted in us, a whole new starting point, a seed of Christ-likeness, a seed that will grow and develop, heading towards its goal. And do you see what its goal is in verse 2? Do you see who we are and where we are heading? We shall be like him. We shall be like Jesus, says John. You see what John's done for us in in giving us confidence that we will remain with him in this last hour is he's first of all grounded in what Jesus has done on the cross to make us God's children and now what he does is he grounds it in our future as well. He says, dear friends, now we are the children of God. That's what we are. And what we will be has uh, has not yet been made known. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. If he has chosen us as children, he will bring us home, says John, and when we get there, we'll be like him. That's our destiny. There's much in our future that's uncertain, isn't it? Much that we'd like to know what's going to happen, how things are going to pan out for us at university, at work, in family, all these things that we'd like to know what it's going to look like. Well, John gives us two certainties to frame our lives around in this last hour. Jesus will appear again, guaranteed. He's coming back. And when he does, we will be like him. I don't know about you, but I think that's amazing. Especially when you think about where we are right now, steeped in sin, you know, two steps back, one step backwards, one step forwards in lots of ways that we're trying to be like Christ. But John says we will be like him. That's where we're heading. And scripture makes clear that this is the main game of this last hour. This is what God is working towards for all his children. You think of all the things that you may wish God was doing in your life right now. Prayers that you'd like him to answer. Prayers that seem fair and and reasonable. Difficulties that uh, you wish he would take away. Relationships that you wish he would change or, or fix or even bring into existence. Outcomes you long for. Things that seem worthy and, and I imagine many are worthy. Well, know this. God, through all the experiences that make up your life, is staying the course on his plan for each of us. In all things, God is working for good. The good he knows we need. 
the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. And do you know what his purpose is for your life? Romans 8.29, to be conformed to the likeness of his son. Christ-likeness, that's what he wants for you. God is reshaping you to be like his son and everything that comes our way, the good, the bad and the ugly, is designed toward that good. You will be like him. And how will he finally bring it about? Something that seems so far from where we are right now. Do you see it there in verse 2? When he appears, then we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. So simple, isn't it? We will be like him because we'll see him. And not in a glass dimly as we do now, not, not through the sort of the foggy lens of our world, but clearly unrestrained, perfect vision of Jesus in all his glory, all his righteousness, all his perfection and it will be stunning. More real than anything you have ever seen. Breathtaking and it will be irresistible, says John. We will see once and for all just how ridiculous it has been to be entranced by the lust of the flesh and the, and the lust of the eyes and the pride of what, what we have and do, when you put the pride of what we have and do next to what you will see when you see Jesus clearly, you'll think, what, what was I doing? We will look at him. We will see him in his glory and in a moment at the last trumpet we will be changed. That's our hope. I love that word hope. I think it's uh, probably my favourite word in the English language and you think about it so much of uh, human life is driven by our hopes so much of human activity the anticipation of what's coming what might be in the future whether whether you're at university and you're, you're churning your way through a degree and you're thinking about the career that might be at the other end of it for whatever reason whether it be the status that that might bring the wealth or maybe a more noble reason, the chance to make an impact, make a difference, do something. Or even just normal work. The hope of paying off the house. The hope of that great holiday somewhere where there's actual sunshine and it's warm and beaches and things like that. Or the provision for your family, having enough to, to give them what you think they need or even what they want. We are driven by hope. I reckon that is captured perfectly in, in my, my favourite movie, the, the Shawshank Redemption, which has this slogan all the way through it, hope is a good thing, maybe the best of things. And they're right. The best scene of the movie, and it's the, the greatest ending of any movie you've ever seen. If you've never seen the Shawshank Redemption, let me encourage you to make it your homework to go home this week and to see it. The very end of the movie, the last few minutes, there's this great scene where these two guys have been in prison. You've got Andy Dufresne, played by, I think, Tim Robbins, uh, who, who was wrongfully in jail and finally escapes and he, he makes it down to his great hope, which was Sewataneo in uh, below the border in America where he's going to sit on the beach and, and build a boat and play chess. And then there's Red, played by Morgan Freeman, who finally does his time and gets out. And he's been asked to go to this field by Andy to read this letter and he reads this letter and it's all about how good it would be if they were there together. And the great last scene of the movie is, is you see Red on this bus 
on his way down to Sewatanao and he, and he says this. He says, I find I'm so excited I, I can barely sit still. I can barely keep a thought in my head. I think it's the excitement only a free man can feel. A free man at the start of a long journey whose conclusion is uncertain. I hope I can make it across the border. I hope to see my friend again and shake his hand. I hope the Pacific is as blue as it has been in my dreams. I hope. Well, let me ask you, do you feel that way about the hope that this passage gives us? Excited. Can't stand still excited. Anticipating what is to come. You know, our world is full of those who are driven by their hopes, excited about their hopes, even though there is no certainty to them, even though many of the hopes in this world are embedded in a world that is passing away. And yet our hope is extraordinary, out of this world extraordinary and certain. How great is the love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called God's children and that is what we are. He will appear and we will be like him. Well, given that, John ends the passage we're looking at tonight in verse 3 with this simple call to us. Everyone who has this sort of hope in them purifies themselves just as he is pure. John says we are playing games. If we have this hope, if we know this is where we're heading and it's certain and yet we live world-shaped lives, you can't put your hope in God's great plan for making you like his son and yet live as if you're someone who doesn't have a hope like that, to get your security or your status or your joy from anything else is a fraud. If you are God's child, if he will soon appear, if you will be like him, then this is the agenda for this last hour. To paraphrase Shawshank Redemption again, we are to get busy living for him or get busy dying like the world around us. That's the goal of each day, to be more like him and not to impress God and not out of fear that we might have drifted from him in some way because that's all been taken care of by his blood. We do it because we know that's who we are. We do it because we know that's where we're heading. Anybody with this sort of hope purifies themselves, says John. It's a word in the present tense. A word of a continual process from the very first day you became a Christian to the day that he will appear or you appear before him. Continual so that we don't forget who we are or where we're heading and continual in case we mistakenly think that we're going to get to that point before he returns. It's a verse that says whether you're 15 or 50 or 85 here tonight, this is your job tomorrow and every day. Now next time uh, we look at 1 John together in a couple of weeks we're going to explore together the practicalities of what it looks like to be God's children. But let me finish by saying a few brief things to get you started as you think about what it might mean for you in this coming week. I think this final verse, 1 John 3, means for us that we will make God's goal in our lives our goal. Our big agenda to be like him, that's my vocation, that's what I do for a job. This verse means that I won't be okay with my own sinfulness by the ways I disobey and distrust God. 
by my lack of truthfulness because I know that's not who I am or where I'm going. This verse means I'll be in the habit of doing what I will do on that day. See Jesus. I'll be in the habit of fixing my eyes on him as I come before him in his word. This verse means that more and more I will be led by God's spirit so that my whole mind, my whole life, my whole heart will be transformed to be more in line with his will so that I will obey my heavenly father as he did. And finally, it will mean that I live like an heir, like one who has an amazing inheritance. Do you know what it means to be a child of God? Have a listen to this from Romans 8:17. If we are God's children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. We share his inheritance. It seems to me that God's revealed that truth to us to just to sort of get it out of the way. It's almost like he's saying to us, it seems that you like to own things, you like to collect things and, and, and amass sort of property and, and possessions. All right, here's the deal. You own everything, absolutely everything. It is yours with Christ. It's just a matter of time. And your ingenuity, your intelligence, your hard work, your your investment savvy has diddly squat to do with it. So get over that. And over the little kingdom that you might be building here, hold it very loosely and get busy living for what counts. Christ is your brother. He is coming soon and you will be like him. That's what life's about. Let's pray.